thinking about ambition. So this is God's word. This is Matthew 6, 19 to 34. If you've got a Bible with you, great. If not, it will appear on the screens behind me. Let's read together. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, and if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or what, what, what about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air, they do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single R to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And we thank God for his word as it still speaks to us today. The 2018 World Cup was lit up by one person. Uh, If you watched any of it, if you watched a little of it, you would have heard his name said again and again and again. His name was Kylian Mbappe, right? I don't know if you watched the whole World Cup, but to be honest, you just needed to see one match, right? And um, that was France versus Argentina. If you're here today and you're like my wife or you're like other people that are not into football, he was the really fast one, right? That just like kept running past people really fast. Okay, that was him, Kylian Mbappe, right? You just need to see one game to see that this guy was just on a completely other level, right? On a pitch full of world-class players, right? If, if 1% of people who play football, and it's probably less than that, actually make it as a professional footballer, then people who end up playing at like the World Cup for a team like Argentina or France is like not point not 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 one percent right? A tiny percentage of people make it to that level, and he was just on another level entirely, right? He's just running past these people like they weren't there. 19 World Cup winner, world at his feet. And so the usual press kind of overload follows and they start to pull up footage uh, of him as a kid and photos of him sitting in his bedroom with like the walls plastered and posters of Cristiano Ronaldo behind him, right? How old do you feel when this guy's icon was Ronaldo, right? That feels really bizarre, right? But um, he had posters all around it. But the one thing that kept coming up again and again and again whenever they did interviews with people that uh, were on his youth team or friends or family was it from a really young age, from like about 10 years, years old, they could say that he was telling them he wanted to be the best player in the world. From 10 years old, he's beginning to articulate, I'm going to be the best player in the world. 
10 years old from one of the poorest parts of Paris and a disadvantaged background and nobody. And he believed he had everything that he needed to be a somebody. And what a way to announce yourself, right? On the biggest stage. What a way. And it's ambition, right? It's ambition that says at 10 years old, I'm going to be the best player in the world. And then actually ends up doing it. The problem is that for every Kylian Mbappe in the world, there are literally millions of kids who also run around telling everyone they're going to be the best player in the world. But the second that their foot comes into contact with the ball, it becomes apparent really quickly that they have absolutely no control over where the ball goes, right? Maybe you were that child. There's plenty of people smirking back at me. Maybe you had dreams of running out for Man United or for whoever at some stage in your life and you realized, actually, I'm terrible at football and it's not going to be me. Maybe that was a painful thing for you, right? Or the tens of thousands of people. We were walking through town a number of months ago and there were like thousands of people lined up in Vic Square to go in for the X Factor auditions, right? Maybe you were one of those people too, but they genuinely believe that they've got it. My favorite part of all of that sort of stuff is whenever they get interviewed on TV and they say something like, who would you liken yourself to as an artist, right? And it's my favorite bit is whenever they reply with something like, well, I would say Beyonce Knowles or Mariah Carey. You're like, pitch lower. Like, please pitch lower. Like, don't pitch that high, because as soon as they pitch that high, you're like, get the popcorn out. Can't wait to see how terrible they are, right? Pick any field, and you'll find people with ambition. It's just that most people never make it, do they? Most people never make it toward the thing that they say they're going to be, especially if what they say they're going to be is especially grand. I was watching a documentary recently about probably the most influential engineer in mind of the 19th century. He's placed number two behind Winston Churchill on the 100 Greatest Britons poll that was run by the BBC. He changed the face of the Industrial Revolution and is responsible for the solving of countless problems that existed in those days. He built dockyards, the Great Western Railway, numerous steamships, including the first across the Atlantic, and numerous important iconic bridges and tunnels. He moulded and shaped life, not just in Britain, but all over the world. He was one of those towering figures that kind of comes along once in a generation. And his name? Isambard Kingdom Brunel. Now, my, the question in my mind is, right, surely his parents, I mean, that's a pretty bold move if you're a parent, right? You've got to be great if you're going to call somebody Isambard Kingdom, right? I mean, you've got to turn out to be somebody stellar. I mean, you can't, like, sell phones, like, working phones for you if your name is Isambard Kingdom Brunel, right? You've got to be a somebody. Nobody with that name works in a chip shop, right? They've got to do things like change the face of the world, don't they? Surely his parents had to know, they had to like have an idea, they had to have a dream. There's no way that you call somebody that sort of name unless they're going to be unbelievable, right? Ambition. And the question today is, what is the ambition of your life? As you sit there today, or if you're listening to this somewhere, driving into work, what is the ambition of your life? And this is a big question, because it will either switch people on to you, or it will switch them off. When I first started going out with Joy, and we were in that stage, you know, hashtag so dreamy, part of your relationship, where you're like doing all the big existential questions, you know that bit where it's like, you're just like dreaming aloud, all the big things you want to be and do with your life. And we started to talk about, you know, what do you really want to do with your life? And Joy, at that stage said to me, I just really, really, really want to be a mum. And I loved that about her from so early on. I thought that was an incredible thing. Something in me connected with that part of her that really wanted to be that. 
Equally, I was with a good friend a little while ago, and we were talking about the same sort of stuff, and he turned around to me and said that his ambition in this life was to be a millionaire. And it switched me off like that, because that's not something that connects with me personally. There's nothing wrong with what he wanted, but it just didn't connect with me. And the thing about ambition, right, is that it speaks profoundly into and of who you are, doesn't it? What you want to be, what you want to give yourself to, absolutely speaks right through the heart of who you are. Because your ambition speaks out loud for all to see of who you want to be in this life. Dallas Willard calls a human being an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. And that's true, right? That's true. There's something in all of us that is unceasing. Searching for purpose, searching for a place in a story that's bigger than ourselves. It's in there, right? We're all wired for it. And I believe it's why humanity is just running so hard all of the time. We are, after all, the only being created in the image of God, in and for relationship with him, for God's restoration project for the whole of creation. That's what we were unpacking last week when we were talking about mission. We're the only being Created in his image. Created to partner along with God in his restoration project for the whole of creation, right? That's no small thing. We are, after all, a people who were once walking in beautiful harmony with Jesus in the garden in perfection only to lose it. But there's still a residue in there. Lots of commentators and people much smarter than me will say that one of the reasons why human beings are the way they are is that we once knew perfection and then we lost it. And that's one of the reasons why we are striving so hard. And so we dream and we long for and we run after the stuff that's captured our hearts. It's wired in there and it just won't switch off, will it? So what do we do with it? The question is, what do we do with it? If we generally accept that there's something in there that's striving, that's longing for, that that is longing to be part of something bigger than ourselves, that doesn't switch off, you can't kind of just disconnect it from the plug, you can't just like wipe it away, you've got to come to terms with it, you've got to begin to answer the question, well, what on earth do we do with it then? If I feel this way, what do I do with it? Well, that's where we land in today's passage, Okay. And I've spent some time speaking about the call of the kingdom and what a life lived under the rule of the kingdom in the direction of the kingdom looked like in chapters 5 and so far in chapter 6 of this um, journey through Matthew 5 and 6. Jesus turns his attention to the two main things that will block our interaction with him and our growth in the kingdom. So actually when he was talking about fasting, Jesus is really speaking about our tendency to long for and go after the opinions of other people. He's talking about the fear of man. He's talking about the lure of respectability, whatever you want to call it. But basically he's saying, actually, when we put the opinion of other people higher than we put the opinion of God, then that's trouble. You're only ever going to get so far if that's what you're longing for. And then this week he turns his attention to the second thing, and that's money slash stuff slash possessions. These are the two biggest ways, Jesus says, that we end up walking outside of the kingdom. And they can be subtle, or they can be full frontal. 
And so to kind of combat it and to speak into it, Jesus talks about two things, and that's what we're going to focus on today. The first of these is ambition, and the second is worry. Jesus talks about first about ambition, right? This is God's word. This is verse uh, 19 to 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this resonates with me big time, right? Because I am, as they affectionately call it in Northern Ireland, a magpie, right? Uh, You ever heard that? People say, oh, she's just a magpie. Well, I am a magpie, right? I like nice things, okay? I just have to come to terms with that, right? I love nice things, right? I mean, I used to try and fend it off a little bit by saying to people, especially to Joy, it's not that I like loads of things. I just like really specific, nice things, right? Like, so, I mean, I used to say that, okay? And I kind of used to maybe believe that a little bit that that's how I really felt so you know if it was jeans you couldn't just buy any jeans it had to be like organic raw denim right or if it was like cycling kit it's like has to be a very specific type of cycling kit or shoes or whatever it is right I'm like an internet researcher to the max right and I will not buy anything until I procrastinated for approximately 100 hours right that's how it works whether it's a kettle or it's jeans like I'm that guy right but now, if I'm really honest with myself and honest with you, I really have to admit that actually, deep down, I just really like loads of really nice specific things, right? It's not that it's just one or two. It's like, I mean, it's countless, really. I mean, every time I've got one of those really nice specific things, I'm already planning how I can get another one, right? There is no upper limit, right? Never, there's, there's just never enough. Speaking recently in the Guardian newspaper, apologies if you were at Alpha and heard this quote already on Wednesday night. Steve Hard is the head of sustainability at IKEA, uh, the world's largest home furnishings company, and he said this, if we look on a global basis in the West, we've probably hit peak stuff. We talk about peak oil, I'd say we've hit peak red meat, peak sugar, peak stuff. And this resonates with me, maybe it does with you too. For most of us where we sit today, we have more stuff than we could possibly ever need, right? Your house has almost certainly got stuff that you're already like, oh, we need to throw a load of that out or we need to get rid of all of this stuff that we have. We all know the lure of lush Scandinavian sideboards, multi-room hi-fis, salvage denim and limited edition trainers is strong, right? But equally, we all probably know how empty it feels to get them, don't we? Because all you ever want is more. The second you wheel it into your house and you set it up and you sit down and you're like, oh, that clock needs to change. Oh, we need to change the carpet. Oh, that rug doesn't match anymore, doesn't it? Isn't that like what happens next? Enough is never enough and it just won't switch off. So I don't struggle to understand Jesus' words in this passage. Maybe you don't either. Actually, I think it's not just the items themselves that rust and perish. Actually, I think it's more like a part of us does too when we give ourselves to a life that just seeks more and more and more. And yet Jesus says, store up treasure in heaven. So what on earth is that, right? I think we get whenever he says, don't store up treasure on earth. It rusts and it rots. Okay, I get that. Store up treasure in heaven. What are you talking about, Jesus? How do I go about this? Well, heaven isn't just a future thing, right? So that's the first thing you've got to understand when he says it. It's not just this like far off, distant, it'll happen at some point in time. So it's, he's not just talking about a future event. It's not like you can store up prayers or bank your best moments, right? That doesn't work. The Bible, God doesn't work that way. Like God, that one time whenever I like fed a homeless person, like cha-ching, like that doesn't work. It doesn't happen, right? 
Jesus has already said that the kingdom is right here. Heaven is right here. And so storing up treasure in heaven is to be where God is right now. It's to learn to live and serve by investing in what we have and what God is doing in this world now. That's what he's saying. Don't store up stuff. Store up treasure in heaven by getting involved, partnering with God in what he's doing in the world right now because it won't rust and it won't decay. Some of you will know that feeling when you do, right? It's that feeling when you get home after a week-long youth team. You know that feeling where you're like absolutely shattered, you're stinking, like you've had rubbish food for a week, you couldn't possibly even think about another chippy, but there's that part of you inside that's like, that was amazing. I've been involved in something God's been doing in the world this week. That was incredible. That feeling maybe some of you had this week when you got home from Alpha and you invited a couple of friends and they actually came and they were like buzzing about it and you had a significant conversation on the way home in the car. That's that feeling or that feeling whenever you step out in faith and you pray for someone and you feel like God spoke to them through you. That's that feeling. And even most, the most incredible of them all whenever you're involved in leading somebody to faith in Jesus sort of feeling that you never, ever forget. That's what it feels like to store up treasure in heaven. That's it. That's what a heaven investment feels like. Something different goes off in your heart, doesn't it? Something entirely different goes off in your heart. That's, inc- that's so much better than just unboxing your new IKEA furniture, right? And I love that, by the way. I love, like, kind of leaving out all the wee piles of screws and dials and all the wee bits, right? I love doing that, but, like... Something goes off in your heart when you invest treasure in heaven that's so much better than your next sideboard, your next hi-fi, whatever it is. And that's important, right? Because Jesus says the heart is the key. This is what he says in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this is the crux of all of this passage. You see, heart in this case doesn't mean some wishy-washy, kind of warm, fuzzy feeling. That's not what the word meant. The heart in this case was the Greek word cardia, which which translates as the core of our total being, or the wellspring of who you are and what you do. That's way deeper than just like a warm, fuzzy feeling, right? The core of your total being. In other words, the center of who you are, for where your treasure is, there you really are. That's what Jesus is saying. Where your treasure is, there you are. You want to know who you are? You want to know what it is you're longing for? Take a look at your treasure. And the truth is that life organizes itself around our hearts, doesn't it? If we're kind of just moving through life, we organize our life around our hearts. We do the things we want to do. We do the things we enjoy. We follow the stuff that we like, don't we? We organize our lives around our hearts. In other words, we give ourselves to what has got a hold of your heart, our treasure. And treasure is really to talk about what we give our ambition, our interest, our resources, and our hopes to. Really what I'm talking about here is what you're living for. We talk about treasure, we're talking about what you're living for. And the question, therefore, is what do you treasure? What's your treasure? You know, from a really early age, Abraham Lincoln set his sights on, uh, and I quote, engraving his name in history. And he once said this about ambition. Every man is said to have his peculiar ambition, 
I have no other so great as that of being truly esteemed by fellow men, by rendering myself worthy of their esteem. Right? He had lofty ambitions. And so he set himself as a man full of ambition for the betterment of the United States on becoming president. Right? His presidency was uh, the one that most people think of as kind of the greatest American president of them all. He did an incredible amount of stuff, lots of which was really very difficult if you know anything about the time that he was the president. But the journey even to getting there wasn't straightforward. Right? Here's just a few dates and events that led up to him becoming the President of the United States of America. In 1816, his family was forced out of their home. He had to work to support them. In 1818, his mother died. In 1831, he failed in business. In 1832, he ran for state legislature and he lost. In 1832, he lost his job. He wanted to go to law school, but he couldn't get in. In 1833, he borrowed some money from a friend to begin a business, and by the end of the year, he was bankrupt. He spent the next 17 years of his life paying off his debt. In 1834, he ran for state legislature again, and he won. In 1835, he was engaged to be married, but his fiancée died. In 1836, he had a nervous breakdown and was in bed for six months. In 1838, he sought to become Speaker of the state legislature, and he was defeated. In 1840, he sought to become elector, and he was defeated. In 1843, he ran for Congress, and he lost. In 1846, he ran for Congress again. This time, he won. In 1848, he ran for re-election to Congress, and he lost. In 1849, he sought the job of land officer in the home state, and he was rejected. In 1854, he ran for Senate of the United States and lost. In 1856, he sought the vice presidential nomination at his party's national convention. He got less than 100 votes. In 1858, he ran for Senate again, and he lost. And then in 1860, he was elected as the president of the United States of America. What a journey, right? The 16th president of the United States thought by many to have been their greatest. And it was a lifetime in the making. It was his treasure. It had to be his treasure. There's no way any human being endures that and goes through that and perseveres and pushes through if that isn't his treasure. And you see, when we talk about treasure, I'm not just talking about stuff, right? Because that would be to minimize its value. That would be to kind of like just reduce it down to something that's actually not that meaningful. We're speaking right to the heart of what it means to be human. We all have treasure, whatever it is, right? And our living tends to run after it. And you know, sometimes I feel, sometimes I think it feels like the commitment to follow Jesus is big, right? Sometimes when I'm talking to somebody and I'm aware that like they've got stuff in their life and and as they follow Jesus, they're having to put some pretty serious weighty things down. They're having to push some big things aside. They're having to wade through really difficult decisions and life choices and all of that stuff. And I kind of look at it and go, man, following Jesus is really, really hard. Like the things you need to do and give and give up, they can feel huge at times, can't they? I mean, Jesus calls us to be all in, doesn't he? We all know that the call of Jesus to follow him is all in. There's no half measures, right? And then Jesus says this. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And it clicks, right? It clicks, and here's why. You see, money was originally actually the word mammon. And it means more than just money. It means the pool of wealth and stuff and the belief that this is the most important thing in life. In other words, yes, Jesus is calling you into a relationship that wants all of you, your focus, your devotion, your heart. 
But my mom does exactly the same thing. It does exactly the same thing. Your stuff does too. Jesus is asking for all of you, but your stuff is asking for all of you as well. We've got to come to our senses that Jesus isn't the only thing in the world demanding all your attention. We've got to come to terms with that. And the question is, what do you treasure? Where you sit today, what do you treasure? What's got your heart? How do you know? Well, here's some questions, right? Here's five questions that I was beginning to think about, like treasure. And uh, I was reading through various commentaries, and I kind of picked up a number of questions that might help you figure out just what your treasure is, right? Question one, what occupies your mind when you've got nothing else to do? Question two, what do you worry most about? Question three, what or whom, outside of your kind of very closest loved ones, right? What or whom do you worry most about losing? Question four, what are the things that we measure other people by? Question five, what is it we know we cannot be happy without? Because if you can answer those questions, you'll be further on the road to knowing what you treasure. What do you treasure? And what's got your heart? Jesus talks about ambition, right? And then finally he talks about worry. He talks about worry. This is what he he continues to say in verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? You know, we live in a world that is taken over by worry, right? It's ever-present. It feels like one of the most natural things in the world, doesn't it? Just one of the things that it means to be human is to worry, right? feels that way. In the UK, some 8 million people, that's one in eight, report to having an anxiety disorder of one kind or another. In 2017, a study by Place to Be reported that almost two-thirds of all children worry all the time. 82% of students suffer from stress or anxiety. 40% of the general population report the same. And according to research by Rescue Remedy, sorry, I don't know if that's an authority, 86% of us are worriers thanks to work and stress and smartphones. Business is good for them, right? They're not backing off. If they know 86% of you are potentially customers, they're doing all right, right? It's just part of what it means to be alive, isn't it? It's funny, I was at an evening of worship in a house uh, just outside Balmina, and uh, the guys from House Fires were overleading worship. And it was kind of quite a free evening. It was, there were lots of people kind of crammed in the living room. It was amazing, really. Uh, and throughout that evening, they began to sing prophetically and, and all of that sort of stuff. And at one point when they're singing prophetically, Pat Barrett, who is the front man of that kind of group, he eventually begins to push in. And, and he's kind of singing out various proclamations over people's lives and what he thinks God is saying. And at one point, he sings out, Fear, you've always been such a son of a bitch. And it was one of those kind of moments in it right and it broke something and I think it broke something because it connected with just about everybody there that fear and worry are just a part of what it means to be alive right I think deep down we all realize that and we can all recognize if we start searching just how big a bearing fear and worry and all of their friends have in our life and so Jesus speaks on it right 
Jesus speaks on it. And the reason why he picks water and food and clothes are because those were a big deal in those days, right? In this little bit there. And again, just after that, this, this kind of little section, he speaks again about water and food and clothes because they were like the metrics of their time, right? They were the things, because people, most people were kind of living off subsistence. They were kind of on the line all the time. They weren't like us with store cupboards full of food. They were like living from day to day. So water and food and clothes were a massive deal. Those were kind of the big bearings of their life. So it would be kind of stand to reason that that's what they were worrying about, right? But I wonder if you've ever thought before, just for a second, how fundamentally happy a person Jesus was. When you read his words, when you read who he is, I wonder if you ever thought about how happy a person he was, okay? I mean, yes, I know there were big moments in his life where he knew grief and he knew trauma and he knew stress and he knew sorrow, right? He was called at one point a man of sorrows. And the experience of, for example, the Garden of Gethsemane, of wrestling with the will of the Father and the disconnection that was before him has got to be one of the more horrendous experiences of all of humanity. But these were the exceptions for Jesus. You spend any time reading about his life. He was not a worrisome person, was he? We're watching the life of the one person who knew how to live a life without worry. Just take these verses, right, and how he speaks about birds, right? Just take them, right, and look at what he talks about. He's talking as one, okay, the savior of the whole world, right? He only had three years of ministry time. Okay, He knew what was ahead. He knew what being the savior of the world would mean in his life. He knew what the prophecies and all of that stuff sort of said. He knew what was coming. He knew the task was absolutely massive and yet he still had time to sit at some point and watch the birds fly. To watch as they kind of danced in the air and all of that sort of stuff. I mean, when he talks about it, it's like human description, isn't it? It's like he's sitting as one who sat in the field one day and just watched birds in the air flying just for the fun of it. Jesus was always able to be so present, wasn't he? Whoever was in front of him with the people that were there in the moments that he was in. And then there's us. And we're not even able to eat brunch without taking photos of it. We barely live in the moments that we're in without thinking, how quick somebody take a photo or somebody post or my phone's just gone off, right? We're barely able to live in the moments of our lives without thinking about the other things that are around our lives and we're always worried. Why? When the eternal words of the great now deceased theologian Biggie Smalls more money, more problems, right? And I believe that one of the things that Jesus is saying in this passage is that our level of worry or anxiety in this life is directly connected to how much we treasure the things that we treasure. I believe he's saying, just what Biggie Smalls is saying, more money, more problems, he's saying it's directly connected to the stuff that you treasure. Your worry will be deeply connected to it, right? Whether that's reputation or money or career or relationships or stuff. Worry isn't a modern problem, it's a human problem. And that's why Jesus moves from part one of this passage to part two of this passage, right? One where he talks about ambition and the heart and treasure and all of that. And then he moves into talking about worry so easily. And he does it through the hinge word, therefore, right? And we know, having spent various times walking through books in this last year, that when one of the biblical authors, in particular Jesus, does it, it's like he's responding, okay? Saying all this stuff, and then he says, therefore, which means part two is deeply connected to part 
one. In other words, you can't treasure God and other stuff because both are asking for all of your life. And if you try, all you'll get is worry, fear, and anxiety. And I get this, right? I get this personally. I don't know about you, but I get this. Because for as long as I can remember, uh, growing up, going through school, going through uni and work and all of the rest, the great ambition of my heart, just being really honest with you all, was to be exceptional, right? Was to be exceptional, right? In so many ways, I didn't really care what I did, if I'm being honest. I was one of those people that kind of breezed through school. And somehow that meant I resulted in doing A-levels in maths, physics, and history. Like, how the heck did that happen, right? So we did three completely random A-levels. And then whenever I went to uni, I didn't even follow any of those. I did law, which is not connected at all to any of those. And then when I left uni, I didn't do anything with law. I started to go into management, and I wanted to do management-type stuff. And then from management, I ended up leading a church. Like, what? the heck in between I also like toyed with thinking I could be a musician that didn't work out and so as I say when all else failed I've turned out to be a pastor right Uh, what is it like those who can't do whatever teach well apparently like pastoring is way worse than that so here we are right but if I'm really honest with you deep down there's always been this ambition and this ache and this weight in me to be exceptional I didn't actually care what at All I cared was that I would be exceptional at something. And just because I lead this church and and believe I'm doing what God has me for, that is still there, right? It's not like that is switched off just because I do this. It's not like the things that you're wired for switch off just because you believe you're following God's purpose for your life, right? Somewhere underneath the surface still speaking to me is that ambition. And in my worst moments, right, because that's been my ambition, the great worry and fear of my life, if I kind of looked at it and I'm able to see what Jesus is saying, if I look at my treasure and I look at my worry, what's my greatest worry? My greatest worry is that I just wind up buying average. And so I worry about this because this is what I have given my life to. I worry about this church, right? I worry that this church is just going to end up average. And I worry so much that I get eczema in my arms or my eyes or wherever else I get eczema, right? And when I tell the story of this church, the same, ver- the same voice that's spoken into my life about being exceptional is the voice that tells me to pat out the numbers when somebody says, oh, how's church going? There's a thousand of us. Like, like that, you know, it's that same voice that, that, like, that wants to speak in and through me, right? And that worry is directly proportionate to just how much I treasure being exceptional. Just being honest with you. It's directly proportionate to it. And the great danger when you begin to recognize what your treasure is, And what your worries are. The great danger is you just try to reason it all away, right? You just try to reason your way through it rather than dealing with the heart of the problem. So we become people who default to the then narrative. What do I mean by that? Well, when we get a building, then we'll have a church of a thousand. When we run Alpha, then we'll change. If we could just book a big celebrity speaker slash worship leader, then we'd fill the church, etc., etc., etc. Or how about for you, if I could just meet someone then, if I could just get the house then, if I could just get the promotion then, if I could just lose a few pounds then. And we need to deal with the source because the worry comes then is worse than the one that we have 
right now. What do I mean? This is what Jesus says in verse 34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And what he's talking about here is anticipatory anxiety. What do I mean by that? Well, Michel de Montaigne, a French Renaissance philosopher, said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortune, most of which never happened. And maybe that resonates with you. It's true, right? The worst worry are the ones about tomorrow. The worst worries are always the ones about tomorrow. And those worries are the ones that nearly always don't come to pass. In fact, a recent study based on recipients, I think it was about a thousand recipients who talked about the worries of their life were reevaluated ten years later, and eighty five percent of those people who were reevaluated, it turned out the things that they worried about never came to pass. The worst worry, the worst anxiety we carry anticipates things that may or may not ever happen. And yet, as I said, here's Jesus. A man who lived so totally present in this world, carrying the title of Savior, Messiah, hope of the nation, speaking of himself as the way, the truth, and the life. And you would think that not just carrying all of that expectation on his shoulders and the full expression of the ambition of God, but also knowing that the road toward fulfilling it would lead to the cross. Worry would be a big part of his life, right? I mean, if that's me and I know I've got a dentist appointment next week, I'm pretty worried, right? But this is Jesus who knows that the only way he gets to become the person that he's meant to be and do what he's meant to do is to go through the cross. And yet he never does. And yet he never does. Hi. Well, really quickly, just as we finish today, Jesus lived inside the purposes of God for his life and in the call of the kingdom. He was completely alive and fulfilling what God was doing in the world. And yet he lived each day. He lived each day. George MacDonald wrote, no man ever sank under the burden of the day. It's when tomorrow's burden is added to the burden of today that the weight is more than any man can bear. It's when tomorrow's burden is added onto today that you can't bear it. And in my life, I've watched on as people really close to me have walked through and endured some of the hardest things that this world can ever throw at you and yet have managed to keep their eyes on Jesus and on who they are. And yet I've watched other people crippled by worry over things far, far smaller than those others have endured that have never come to pass. So what do we do? Well, Jesus says it next, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. Seek first the kingdom. Seek first to be part of what God is doing in your life and in this world right now. And don't worry about the stuff, in this case, the water, the food, the clothes, your stuff. Don't worry about the stuff that will be added on to you. We're back to treasure, right? We're back to the heart. The antidote to worry is to give yourself to long for and treasure and place yourself right slap bang in the middle of what God is doing in this world. That's what Jesus says. The only way that we begin to deal with worry is to recognize what we treasure and then begin to place ourselves right in the middle of what he's doing in your life And in this world, sure, worry feels like the most natural thing in the world. But faith, Jesus says, is the default setting in the kingdom.